What's it like to be born into poverty in Kansas? Sarah Smarsh will be here to talk about her memoir, Heartland. Why doesn't every American have the right to vote? Alan Lichtman will be here to discuss his book, The Embattled Vote in America. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Sarah Smarsh joins us now from Wichita, Kansas. Her new book is called Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. Sarah, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So you've worked as a journalist. You've written about class and poverty and politics and policy, and you still write about all of that in this book, but it's a memoir. Why did you decide to write about yourself and make it personal? You know, that um, process actually worked sort of in the opposite direction of what you just described, by which I mean, even as a kid, I knew that someday I was going to write a book about my family. And that was an intention that I held, you know, as a teenager and as an undergraduate. And then I did my, um, my MFA with a focus on piecing together a family narrative. I understood that there was something compelling about my family and rare and increasingly rare in the American story, my having grown up on a small family farm in Kansas. And then along the way, interestingly enough, as I was working as a journalist and writing about issues like class um, that my upbringing gave me a particular vantage on, that sort of allowed me to acquire the language for articulating and understanding what I had felt just at a gut level, which is that my family's story has everything to do with public forces like politics and policy. And so I attempted to fold those kind of understandings into the narrative. So even growing up, you sense that there was something special and interesting about your own family. Yeah, I think, you know, as a kid, I was largely raised by my grandmother, who is kind of a central figure in the book, my maternal grandma, who was very young. She was all of 34 years old when she became, uh, found out she would be a grandmother to me. She led such a wild life and um, was just brimming with, um, I wouldn't exactly call Um, them secrets, but stories that a stoic Midwestern German Catholic family doesn't tend to be forthcoming with. I understood that that her life had been particularly wild, crazy, difficult, full of strife, and also um, incredible resilience. And so I think it was just maybe, you know, I had just a natural predisposition as a budding writer, and that combined with being in a household with some kind of extreme characters Mm -hmm. um, created that Um, very early awareness. All right. I want to talk about all these, or at least some of these extreme characters, but let's start with your maternal grandmother. So uh, Betty, like I said, she became a grandmother very young. Um, She was 16 when she became pregnant with my mother, Jeannie, who was then 17 when she became pregnant with me. That recurring theme of generations uh, experiencing teen pregnancy is uh, uh, a big piece of the book. As far as Betty as a bigger character, um, you know, she's, well, for one thing, you know, when I'm writing about a place and a class that so often I think is signified by men wearing tool belts, I, of course, understand the, the women in my family to also be members of that same, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. white, working, white working class. 
And so, and her story in some ways has everything to do with her gender. So as a teenager um, with a baby in poverty and an abusive husband, severely physically abusive, and her just struggles to get by in that era, you know, is is a, a picture of what I now call the, the working poor that I think we hear less about than the story involving men and factories. Mm-hmm. She worked in some factories herself, by the way. <laughs> the work is a big part of her story in the book, but so too is her struggle for financial independence and uh, respect and dignity and safety in a world that was stacked against her for her gender. Well, it also strikes me, as you said, that both your maternal grandmother and your mother were teenage mothers. And I believe you were the first woman in your family not to have become a, a teenage mother right in generations. Yeah, as, as best as I can trace it in my own specific maternal line of my family, as far back as I could find the records, every woman's first pregnancy was before she was 20. So I think that's right. <laughs> So that's something I think also that gets missed out maybe when people talk about the Trump voter or the unheard from Midwestern Americans, that the extent to which teenage pregnancy sort of carves out your trajectory to a certain degree. Absolutely. And that has, you know, it has to do with socioeconomics. It has to some extent to do with culture. Sometimes it has to do with religion, not so much in my particular family. It is a feature and just a a daily truth of the world that I grew up in that uh, many young women's outcomes are, are sort of decided at the moment of pregnancy being conceived in her teenage years. That now this of course is, is true in, in all in all sorts of economically disadvantaged groups, not just the Midwestern white working class, but you know, I I have um, the story that I have to share and contribute to that conversation and um, and yeah, the the um, the female body um, kind of looms large in my book as a um, a springboard for, for talking about these bigger issues you're you're referring to. So many people w- would look at a situation like this and at the kind of poverty and instability of your family growing up and others like that and say, well, Sarah Smarsh got out, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. If you have the sort of, you know, persistence and the, and the, the pluck and the wherewithal as an individual, you can overcome those kind of circumstances. Is that true? I think that it's true. You might have a chance, but it, it actually is a slim chance in this society. And so one of the ideas that I tried to fight against in the book is that my tale is about some sort of individual triumph. Mm -hmm. So I am the product of generations of a family and I inherited the good and bad of that. And so too, I am the product of this society and it's good and bad. As far as my getting out as one, as people say, yes, I, I worked my butt off and I, I will never sell myself short on that. It, It was a hard row and I give myself credit for, for that hard work. However, first of all, there are a million blessings that I can't take any credit for that helped me along that path, um, born in good health and with a sound mind, for one. And then, you know, I think more to your point, there were, there were all sorts of good breaks and social influences and public programs and public institutions that essentially I harnessed that mm-hmm. allowed me to take those steps upward on some ladder that we envision. And so, for example, when I was a first-generation college student at the University of Kansas in journalism school, 
I literally did not know what graduate school was while I was in college. Like those, that sort of language that people use about uh, the college experience was like totally foreign to me, even as, you know, I was a bright kid. And there was a program, a federally funded program called the McNair Scholars Program that happened to um, have an office on the KU campus. And they essentially encourage first-generation, minority, and low-income students into the academy, into graduate study. And uh, I never in a million years would have applied to graduate school if they hadn't said, we will give you uh, a summer research stipend. We will offer you our computer to come in and fill out these applications. You can print stuff out on our printer. Uh, We will pay your graduate school application fees. And so uh, it would be um, it would be real hubris and also just plain inaccurate for me to claim that um, the the good things that have happened in my life are all to my own credit. There are some you know sort of easy descriptions of your book that compare it with J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy and say you know here is the sort of liberal version to his more conservative story. What do you make of that? You know, I, I, I see that, and I think there's some fair points to that analysis. I think where it kind of um, loses validity is that my own, well, in a couple of ways. I, I did happen to read Hill, Hillbilly Elegy as a, a bit of a covert polemic, and um, my book I, I don't really think is making a, a political argument that has to do with one side or the other of the proverbial aisle. One reason for that is I was actually raised with and and into my early 20s held moderately conservative views, and I get a certain strain of um, conservatism, certainly not the the far-right version that is running the country right now, but, you know, I, I, I don't see the country as like two groups that are pitted against one another, and I'm on one side of it, and the reason is I have at different times in my life occupied both sides of it. I now identify as a very liberal and progressive person in like every column. But uh, in 2000, when I cast my first ballot in a presidential election, I voted for George W. Bush. Wouldn't make that decision now. Um, But that's an important understanding, I think, that I have about the way that our politics are, are, are so shaped by our environment and the information that we are privileged to have or not have. And... I think that someone can probably pick up my politics by reading the book, but I hope they would also see that my ultimate goal for the writing was to, at this um, extremely polarized moment, transcend politics, um, Mm -hmm. even as I'm talking about very public issues. Well, to stay on the the theme of politics for just one more moment, there was an early, another earlier book about Kansas called, of course, What's the Matter with Kansas by Tom Frank, in which he asked the question, why did so many Kansans vote against their own economic self-interest? And presumably, at least, you know, even from just a basic kind of social welfare and taxation issues, that would have been the case for you in the year 2000 voting for Bush. And I'm curious curious what your sense is, having grown up there and, uh, as you said, having grown up in a fairly conservative family, why that is. You know, I never quite like that framework um, that's presented in that book of this the idea of voting against one's best interest, because I think implicit in that critique is a, a, a bit of condescension or, or suggestion that someone must be 
just plain dumb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so, but but I do think you know there are, there are pieces of that book that, that point out very important aspects of this mystery, which include you know the very artful leveraging of hot button social issues by the right to essentially get people to the polls, regardless of every other issue that that might send them um, toward a, a democratic vote. Also, I think the culture that I grew up in, it is a very individualistic one, but for, for understandable reasons. If you, if you live in a geographically remote area, your relationship to government and public systems is, is just, it's different, not for any like political reasons, but just by definition of, of where you are on the earth your water comes out of a private well that you maintain yourself. You're, there's no one coming down with a snow scoop on January 7th, like you're doing that for yourself and your neighbors. So you, it's very easy to, to feel somehow detached from not just the power centers of this country, but even just the social fabric of it. So I, I think that the uh, conservative wing of American politics has been, you know, maybe starting with Reagan or before, very clever at um, tapping into that very real and and not at all sinister authentic experience of of feeling kind of like damn proud of the work that you do yourself. Now, as far as why people are voting the way that they are today, I'm less um, of an expert on that. In that, my family actually goes against the grain of um, this vision of my area of the country as quote unquote Trump country. Most of my close family members were briefly in sort of like the the Reagan realm of moderate republicanism and, and now are doing things like caucusing for a democratic socialist from Vermont in 2016. So my family is now very progressive, identifying with a less talked about strain of populism that's going on in the country on the left. You know, that's a long answer to say, ultimately, that I can't, of course, explain why people are doing the things they do. But I do know that the wrong way to come at attempting to answer that question is by starting from a place of judgment. You left Kansas. You lived briefly in New York. You've gone back and you live now in Wichita. I'm curious about that decision. I mean, does it do you feel very close to your roots? Does this just feel like where you belong? It does feel like where I belong, which is ironic in some ways. Um, you know, when I was a kid in a, a rural Kansas high school, I think I, I was probably one of the students that um, the teachers or pe- people might have looked at and said, "She's she plans on leaving. She's going to get out." And I and I did. I lived in Kansas City, New York, Austin for a couple of years um, here and there over the course of my career. But I always come back to Kansas and the vast majority of my life has, has been lived in this state intentionally. And I think that, you know, I find when I talk to people in, in cities whose populations come and go, that it, it really, as much as I've written in, the, in my book about the challenges of my upbringing, gosh, there were some really beautiful gifts about it too. And one is that, to my mind, I grew up helping farm the same land that at least five generations of my family also farmed. And that is a a deep sense of connection to place through time and just um, tangible physical work and living that I, I think is increasingly rare in our society. 
So I think that was formative. And as far as my my decision to be here now, and particularly within the context of what I do as a journalist and writer, my family's here and I love them and I want to be close to them. But I also feel kind of a sense of civic responsibility to my place to say, you know, I was encouraged by um, social tides and economic trends to leave this place. Um, the, the term rural flight actually goes back like a century. It's not a new story. And I love this state and its people. I want the best for it. And if everyone with good intentions who has a chance to leave does so, then I think that <laughs> that in, you know, is an understandable decision, but also is maybe a somewhat selfish one if, if you're envisioning your life as connected to a place as I do. So I, I don't feel any sacrifice about being here. I want to make clear when I say a sense of responsibility. Um, I love it. And I'm looking out the window at my um, garden full of vegetables right now. But it's important at this moment where there is such a lack of understanding just across geographic regions and lines in our country um, that some of us endeavor to be planted precisely in the place that we're writing about. Well, that brings us right back to the title of your book. It's called Heartland by Sarah Smarsh. The subtitle is A Memoir of Working Hard and Being Broke in the Richest Country on Earth. Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you, Pamela. This was really great. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Alan Lichtman joins us now from Washington, D.C., where he is a professor of history at American University and author of a new book called The Embattled Vote in America, From the Founding to the Present. Alan, thanks so much for being here. My great pleasure. So we are talking very appropriately on what is in New York primary day, where the governor is up for re-election, the Democratic primary today, attorney general. And so a good day to talk about voting, of course, also in the midst of lots of midterm primaries. So it's a, it's an interesting subject, very important right now. And there are a number of books out on the subject. And what I found most interesting is the basic question that you answer in a surprising way, which is, do Americans have a constitutional right to vote? Americans do not have a constitutional right to vote. Even some of my professor friends were surprised to learn that. One of the greatest mistakes made by the framers of the Constitution was their failure, either in the original Constitution or in the Bill of Rights, to include the right to vote as a basic right of all Americans. Even though the right to vote grounds every other right, it is nowhere in the Constitution. And that mistake was then compounded by the framers of subsequent amendments on voting, all of which were framed negatively in terms of what states cannot do rather than providing any positive guarantee to the vote. So you have amendments saying states cannot deny the right to vote because of race or age of 18 years or older or gender. 
but we still don't have a positive right to vote in the Constitution, which makes our most precious right very much subject to the whims of legislatures and judges. All right. Well, you're a historian, so let's talk about how this happened at the founding. I mean, presumably there were founders who argued for constitutional right to vote. How did the what were the arguments and who was on which side? Well, in fact, there were virtually no founders arguing for a constitutional right to vote. Quite the contrary, the big argument was over whether or not they should put into the Constitution some kind of property qualification to vote. Because in the 18th century, most of the leaders of the nation believed that only those who held property had the independence and the strength of mind to properly vote. That was the real question being debated by the framers at the Philadelphia Convention of 1787. And basically what they decided was they did not want the national government infringing upon the states. Mm -hmm. They wanted to leave qualifications for the vote to the discretion of the states because they understood they couldn't establish the new government without ratification by at least three-quarters of the states. And they knew that if they imposed on state sovereignty in this regard, they may, may well have lost the entire Constitution. So it was a matter of the philosophy of the times and deference to the states. And at that time, did each state then address rights to vote? And did some of them institute it in a more positive way and others not? How did that work out among the, the original? Well, in the early republic, states did not institute a positive right to vote for the most part. Most states, in fact, had either property or tax qualifications for voting at the time of the early republic. You then had a very interesting shift in the 19th century. You had a shift from qualifications based upon some kind of external standard, holding property, paying taxes, to qualifications based upon highly biased characteristics of persons. So whole classes of persons were not considered fit to vote in the 19th century. I call this the move to a white man's republic, because while the states were overturning economic qualifications, they were, of course, excluding women from the vote and moving away from kind of non-racial qualifications to providing the vote only for whites. By the eve of the Civil War, North and South, only five of some 33 states permitted non-whites to vote. And do any states have a state constitutional right to vote at this time? Yes. Today, uh, most states do, in one form or another, have a constitutional right to vote. And it may well be that future litigation on voting rights turns to state courts rather than the federal courts, where there are, in fact, some stronger guarantees of the right to vote. For example, in the state of Pennsylvania, the egregious gerrymandering of congressional districts mm -hmm. was overturned not by the federal courts, but by the state courts under the state constitution. So I think the future of voting rights litigation in America 
is going to be at the state level, not at the federal level, particularly with the more conservative tilt of the courts, especially the Supreme Court, with so many appointments being made by President Trump. So even in states that do have a constitutional right to vote, there are lots of ways to manipulate and to impinge upon individuals' right to vote. That's correct. Look, in the early days, as I explained, whole swathes of Americans were denied the right to vote. Women, African-Americans, Native Americans, for a time, people who didn't have sufficient economic wherewithal. The battle continues today, except voter suppression has now taken on more subtle forms. For example, the racial and political gerrymandering of legislative districts, stringent photo voter ID laws that many minorities and poor people Mm -hmm. can't satisfy, voter purges that purge people off the registration rolls, even though they might be eligible to vote, restrictions on early voting, closing or polling places, disenfranchisement of former felons. Most Americans don't know that many millions of Americans today are deprived of their right to vote because of these more subtle but still very effective means of suppressing the vote. The crisis of voting in America is as old as the Constitution and continues to this very day. Is gerrymandering sort of the most effective, biggest culprit here? I would say probably so when you have two kinds of gerrymandering. You have political gerrymandering, Mm -hmm. where you create districts that advantage your party and disadvantage the other party, usually by the packing partisans of the other party into just a few districts or fragmenting their voter strength. And then you have racial gerrymandering, where you undermine the opportunities of racial minorities through these same techniques to elect candidates of their choice. But I would also put uh, stringent photo voter ID laws high on the list today of disenfranchised mechanisms. And some three to four million Americans, we don't realize this, are former felons who paid their dues to society, and yet because of a disenfranchisement laws in many states, they can't vote. When did those laws start, those disenfranchisement laws for prior felons? Oh, they, they go deeply into American history. They go all the way back to uh, the 19th century and were used particularly during the redemption period in the South when white supremacist governments overturned the Reconstruction governments as another means, along with uh, literacy tests and poll taxes, of disenfranchising black people in the South. And the laws were often framed in such a vague way as to particularly target so-called African-American offenders. Does all of this essentially boil down to race? I've been asked this question many times, and race is absolutely central to the right to vote. And so is gender. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget, until 1920, women could not universally vote in the United States. And of course, until the Voting Rights Act of 1965, racial minorities were largely denied the right to vote in much of the country. So it has a great deal to do with race, and it has a great deal to do with gender. And it has to do with this long-standing belief that only white 
men have the qualifications to vote. That for so many years in America, it was believed that women and African Americans were unfit by their very nature to vote. And the argument was made that African Americans and women would be especially susceptible to fraud. This idea of voter fraud, which we see so much in the news today and is used in, in a most disreputable way for voter suppression, dates back to the early republic. Mm -hmm. And throughout our history, bogus claims of voter fraud, not backed up by any hard data, have been used to disenfranchise many groups of Americans. It's being used today, even though study after study shows that voter fraud is vanishingly small in American elections. One of the most chilling things that I have seen in recent voter suppression moves is the Trump administration has now demanded the voting records, the personal voting records of millions upon millions of voters in the state of North Carolina. That's almost Orwellian in its attempt to chill democracy. Well, you know, in general, we look at it and we say, okay, Republicans by and large have favored various measures to restrict voting rights, whereas the Democrats have tried to expand voting rights. Is it that simple or are there exceptions? Well, of course, it wasn't that way in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. The Democrats, of course, control the South and a part of the white redemption, and they were responsible for a lot of voter suppression. But the gyroscope has turned 180 degrees. And you're absolutely right. It is the Republicans who have been more concerned with fraud and more concerned with restricting the vote, and the Democrats more concerned with expanding the vote. And it does come down to the political base of the two parties. The Republican political base is white, Christian, and to a great extent, male, and to an extent, older. And that is the most shrinking part of the electorate. Democratic base is more minority, women, non-religious people, and that is the rising part of the electorate, just demographically. You can't fight birth rates. Republicans can't manufacture more old white Christian men, but what they can do is try to limit the vote of the rising segment of the electorate that tends to be Democratic. Wasn't the 15th Amendment intended to fix a lot of this, and why hasn't it? Well, the 15th Amendment debates are almost as, as important for voting rights as the debates at the Constitutional Convention of 1787. There were proposals at the time of the adoption of the 15th Amendment in the late 1860s to actually put an affirmative right to vote in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. But even those who are sympathetic to voting rights said, this, this is going too far. It'll never be ratified by the states. And that meant two things. The amendment would be framed negatively mm -hmm. in terms of what states couldn't do rather than establish a positive right to vote. And it would focus on race. And as even the framers recognized, it would be possible for malevolent white supremacist governments to get around that by passing so-called race-neutral laws like literacy tests and poll taxes that, in effect, disenfranchised African Americans without directly violating the 15th Amendment. So that was the second pivotal moment in which the American political system failed 
to establish a positive right to vote. I'm curious about how significant the impact is. In a review of another book that comes out this week by Carol Anderson, One Person, No Vote, the figure was cited that voting by African-Americans decreased 7 percent in the 2016 election. I mean, how big an impact does this have on voter turnout? There's no question that voter suppression measures have a dramatic impact on voter turnout. No, it's not 20, 30 percent. It might be more on the order of five, six, seven percent. But look how close the presidential election of 2016 was. Just a few tens of thousand votes in a few critical states under the Electoral College system could have turned that election. So Mm -hmm. even a small amount of voter suppression can have an enormous effect on the balance of political power in America, which is why Republican governments have been so eager to adopt measures that we know restrict the Democratic minority-based vote. If you can't institute a constitutional right to vote, what are the most effective ways to expand the vote so that all eligible voters are able to uh, exert, I guess, not that right, sure. but that theoretical right to vote? Well, in the embattled vote in America, I point out a number of reforms that could have a positive effect on turnout. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things about the vote today is while Republican-controlled states are adopting restrictive measures like stringent photo voter ID. Some of the Democratic-controlled states uh, are moving in the opposite direction and opening up voting. Here are a few of the most effective uh, reforms. Perhaps the two most effective are, number one, same-day registration. Mm -hmm. As you know, maybe a quarter or so or more Americans can't vote because they're not registered. Well, same-day registration, which is now being adopted in more and more states, means when you show up at the polls, you could register right at that time so you don't have to register in advance. The other major reform that was pioneered by the state of Oregon and is being picked up elsewhere is a form of automatic registration. When you get a driver's license or renew your driver's license or apply for social services, you're automatically enrolled on the voter books. Is Oregon the only state that has that kind of default voter registration? It pioneered it, but now a few other states are moving in that direction as well. And I think it will become a trend. But again, there is such a partisan divide on this that it's probably only going to be Democratic controlled states. What about abolishing the Electoral College? I'm all for it. The Electoral College is a relic of the 18th century. It was to a great extent established to protect slavery, because if you had popular votes, slaves would count for nothing since they couldn't vote. But under the three-fifths compromise, they they counted for three-fifths of a person when it came to apportioning electoral college votes. It's an obsolete institution. It leads to minority presidents. We've had two minority presidents just in the last 16 years, Mm -hmm. 2000 and 2016. And it's time to go, but uh, you know how hard it is to get a constitutional amendment through two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-quarters of the states. What about the Supreme Court? If Congress isn't going to fix it, how do things look in terms of the Supreme Court and cases that are coming before it, whether it's gerrymandering or other forms of voter suppression? And, And do you have a sense of where Kavanaugh would fall? 
I think Kavanaugh is going to fall with the rest of the conservatives, mm -hmm. and they're not going to take any action against any of these uh, voter suppression measures adopted by the states. Even before Kavanaugh got on the court, Supreme Court recently blessed a stringent voter purge system in the state of Ohio that undoubtedly is purging eligible voters from the voter rolls. There's been no action taken against uh, political gerrymandering. Supreme Court, again, even before Kavanaugh, blessed uh, a highly racially and politically gerrymandered congressional plan in Texas. So I think the action has got to be in the state courts and the state governments. And what's the, the brightest spot if looking around the country? Oregon, clearly a leader here. Are there other states that are, that are you think, doing a good job in terms of reversing course? Well, I think Oregon is doing a very good job. California is doing a good job. Illinois is beginning to follow suit with some of these measures. But again, these are all solidly Democratic states. The interesting thing looking forward, you know, because these things are, are quite new, would be would some of the purple states mm -hmm. begin to follow the lead of some of the more solidly blue states? So you're going to see states like uh, New Mexico or Virginia begin to expand uh, voter opportunities. That's going to be the real test. Well, uh, at least a little bit of positive news going into the election cycle in what otherwise sounds like a pretty dire situation in terms of, of voting rights. You know, a lot of this is up to the American people. Our political system does respond to the grassroots, and it's up to the American people to demand their voting rights. We saw this in North Carolina when North Carolina passed a host of restrictive measures. The people rose up and protested. And while the measures were ultimately struck down by the courts, I think the people's grassroots activism really mattered. All right. Well, that's a very appropriate message for this election season. Thank you so much. My great pleasure. Alan Lichtman is the author of The Embattled Vote in America, From the Founding to the Present, which is reviewed this week by James Maroon in our Democracy issue of the Book Review. Alexandra Alter joins us now for some news from the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What's new this week? Will you be shocked or disappointed if I tell you there's more news about Trump books? It's good for the book industry. <laughs> it's, it's good for us. Tell. It's true. I know I'm getting a little repetitive every week, but this week was another interesting one for big tell-alls about Trump. And the latest one that is coming out this year is by Stephanie Clifford, better known as Stormy Daniels. St. Martin's Press announced this week that they have a memoir by her. The title is Full Disclosure. I'm pretty sure the pun is intended. And it's coming out in October, which is right smack before these really contentious midterm elections. Usually books get announced months or years in advance. This one they managed to keep under wraps, and it's been in the works for a while, according to her lawyer, Michael Avenatti. Well, it had to have been, you would imagine, if it's coming out exactly. within the month. Exactly. It's all set to go. And, you know, I, I think the White House has probably gotten used to these tell-alls now. There's been so many of them, but this one is likely to put them on edge given the timing. It's going to put her story right back in the news weeks before the midterms. And, of course, you know, she is the woman who has sued the, the president and his lawyer, Michael Cohen, 
over a non-disclosure agreement that she signed weeks before the election, which prevented her from telling her story about a sexual relationship she claims to have had with Mr. Trump. And her case is that Trump never signed the documents and therefore they're not valid? That is her case. And she also sued him for defamation when he tweeted about her after she spoke about being intimidated into silence. All right. Well, I could go off on with many <laughs> questions about the legalities um, there and but I do actually have one question, which is, if that non-disclosure agreement does hold, isn't writing an entire book kind of a violation, you would think? Well, here's something interesting. Recently, both Mr. Trump and Mr. Cohen have offered to tear up the non-disclosure agreement. Michael Avenatti and Stormy Daniels have not yet accepted that offer because they want it to be declared illegal and invalid as opposed to simply not enforced. So it looks like it will not be enforced. And I thought the timing of the announcement was interesting because it did come after that offer. But Mr. Avenatti said it didn't actually have anything to do with that offer. You know, she wasn't available for interviews, but I spoke to him a bit about what's in the book. And apparently, you know, it covers all of her life, including her work in the adult film industry. He said there are going to be explosive new revelations about her relationship with the president and the ensuing non-disclosure agreement and the lawsuit. So I think the last big book by a pornographic performer was Jenna Jameson's book. Oh, way back interesting. When. So this would probably be a little bit different from that one. It might be, yeah. A little, right, well, <laughs> a little more intertwined with politics. And, you know, on the same the, the same day that this news came out, Simon & Schuster put out its extraordinary sales figures for Bob Woodward's book, Fear, Trump in the White House, which went on sale this Tuesday and sold more than 750,000 copies. Now, a lot of that's pre-orders, right? A lot From of Amazon, that is pre-orders, exactly. But it all counts towards the first week on sale. And Simon & Schuster ordered their ninth printing, which is going to bring the number of hardcover copies in print to more than one million. So it's a, that's going to be an extraordinary book that keeps on selling this year, too. So good for the publishing industry, as you said. All right. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Greg Coles, Tina Jordan, and John Williams. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hey, Pamela. It's been a while. It has been a while. So I imagine you've finished Ulysses. <laughs> it's funny. I, I met the poet Ross Gay yesterday, and one of the very first things he asked me was, are you still reading Ulysses? Uh, the answer, Ross and Pamela and everyone else, is yes, I'm still reading Ulysses. I have not finished it. Um, I've changed the way that I'm reading Ulysses a little bit, it's no longer such a kind of focused project read. Um, it's, it's a bathroom read. It's become <laughs> background reading, the, the way that you have the radio on and kind of hear little snatches of, of a song that you like. Um, I, I, even when I was doing the project reading, I wasn't following so well what was going on because that's not how Ulysses, you know, it's not the power broker. Um, it's it's a big book like the power broker, but it's not this kind of sustained narrative. And so half the time you're like, I have no idea what the hell this is. Um, and so I'm, I'm starting to read it just more for the music of it. And that, you know, it's, I, I can read a page or, a, you know, a few pages and not need to know what's going on. I'm just <laughs> giving into the episodic confusion of it all. <laughs> it, it's more like reading poetry now. It's, mm -hmm. it's reading for the language and the music. Um, and I've, I've gone back to reread some earlier sections um, to figure out what's going on um, and to start kind of picking themes out. So all of that is to say that 
I'm not going to talk about you Stevens <laughs> today. Um, I. I was on vacation for the last half of August, and I brought Ulysses with me to the beach, but let's get real. I, I did not read Ulysses on the beach. Um, I read David Sedaris' Calypso, the, the latest essay collection, um, which I had given to my wife as a present. And I realized it is dangerous um, to give somebody a laugh out loud, to give the person that you share your bed with mm -hmm. <laughs> a book that will make them laugh out loud late at night when you're trying to sleep. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> she, you know, I, I've got the pillow over my head and she's laughing and nudging me and saying, listen to this. Um, so finally, on, on vacation, um, I stole her copy away. She finished it long ago. Um, and I read it and I was laughing out loud in a more appropriate place. So that's that's been um, my recent reading. It's funny. Uh, I When I went on a beach vacation, I guess two years ago, I think I brought along like three David Sedaris books. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, an, it's a, a jolly way to read it, it. It's kind of a perfect situation to read him, especially, I mean, um, one of the, the centerpiece um, essays in here is about his beach house and, and coming up with a name for the beach house. He's, the C-section? Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, I'm calling yeah. it the C-section. I love that. <laughs> I was it. listening this summer to Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls um, yeah. in the car, and I had to pick up one of my kids from camp, so I drove up listening to it and, of course, left it in the middle. And then I was trying to figure out, like, which essays are appropriate enough, <laughs> you know, but you can't wing there, it with them because you never know where oh, they're going. The, I, I would never let, you know, read this out loud to my kids yet. <laughs> yes. Well, the Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls, the sort of title essay that is about owls is actually okay if yeah. your kids are okay with dead animals, um, which mine are. Um, so, but, you know, his humor is... is uh, is not for all children. Yeah, I, I'm not <laughs> squeamish, um, but I mean, if, for instance, a line that made me laugh recently, and and we may need to edit this out because I'm not sure what we're allowed to say on the podcast. <laughs> David Sedaris is visiting um, his GP for a physical, and um, the GP says, what do you say you stand up now and I'll do your front and back? It was such a classy, understated way to say, after grabbing your I'd like to stick my finger up your <laughs> I hope no one had to hear that. <laughs> Tina, what have you been reading? So I don't know about the rest of you. If you saw when they came in a set of gorgeous seven paperbacks from a small press, I can't remember which one, the collected works of Margaret Miller. I hope I'm pronouncing oh, that yeah, correctly. I did see those. M-I-L-L-A-R. And I looked at them and I thought, and she's talked about as this great noir writer of the 40s and 50s. And I'm thinking, how, A, did I not know who this was and how have I never read her? And I did a little investigating. Um, her husband wrote under the pen name Ross McDonald. Oh. <laughs> because he said he was the less famous Miller. So he <laughs> wanted to pick a different name. Oh, wow. And she was a trained psychiatrist who never practiced. And that makes a lot of sense to me because most of these short stories, novellas, novels that I've read so far are very much psychological and human studies. And something bad doesn't necessarily happen in all of them, although the threat is always there. I just finished one called The Fiend, which is about set in a very small town in California where a young man who served some prison time for being a pedophile has come back to town and he's mm -hmm. living with his brother. 
and some bad things start to happen to children. And it's very much a character study and like the whole, but not just of this man and his brother, but of like the people in the town who sort of go crazy at this point. I read an incredible one called How Like an Angel, I believe also written in the 1950s, which was about a doomsday cult. Like I had no, okay, I'm naive. I had no idea those things existed in, you know, Southern California in the 1950s. And I'm reading one right now called Beast in View. And it's about a young woman, 30 or so, an heiress and a recluse who's living in a suite in a hotel. And she's becoming increasingly terrorized by these prank phone calls. I have no idea where this is going, huh. but I am loving these so much. Do they? Have you read much Ross MacDonald? No, I've uh, read some. Yeah. I mean, Lou Archer. Do, do these stories have that feel at all? Not to me. Yeah. They're so different. Some of them... She obviously had a few recurring private eyes and detectives in a few of the books. You know, I haven't read all of those yet, but most of them are standalones. I've got those paperbacks um, on my shelf, um, and I have not dug into them myself yet. I, I think uh, eventually. Uh, well, here's the embarrassing <laughs> go thing. On the long list. I picked them up because they were beautiful. I don't know if you did, but they, they when, are you, when you when the books are on your shelf in order, there's like a diorama or whatever on the back, like this '50s living room scene, you know, of like a mother and kids playing on the floor in a board game, and, you know, and a crackling fire in the fireplace. And I guess one of the things that's so interesting about this is that this is a time when Hollywood's, you know, picture of America was pretty unremittingly, you know, rosy and pretty. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are just so dark. You were reading these when you were in Norway. Right. And while you were in Norway, I was reading a Norwegian writer. There you go. <laughs> Even though I was in Germany. <laughs> um, but, you know, I decided that it was time to read Yonesbo for the first time. What I decided was actually that it was time to read some thrillers because I like to read thrillers in the summer and summer was very, very swiftly ending and I had not yet read any. So I read Something in the Water by Catherine Stedman, written by uh, a woman who is also an actress in Downton Abbey and I assume other things. And that was that was pretty entertaining. And then I decided I would read my first Yo Nesbo uh, and chose uh, The Snowman. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> is that the wrong one to pick? I, well, I, they're all really dark. Really violent. Really violent. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I was traveling with my kids and so everyone was talking about what they were reading and they were like, and what are you reading? And I was like, well, and then, you know, from the beginning, I could sort of describe the plot, which starts off with, uh, you know, a young boy. His mother is actually having an affair while he is sitting out in the car. And when she comes back out, there's a snowman and the child is seemingly terrified and ends up saying, you know, we are all going to die and you don't know what has happened. That I could describe with uh, <laughs> the caveat that the mother was running an errand, um, not <laughs> having sex. Instead uh, of we're all going to die, the kids said, we're all going to play with the snowman That's now. right. No, I could do the die thing because, you know, they've, they've seen their scary movies. But now they're all they're all assuming that they can read this book uh, next, which uh, is not happening as I left it in Germany very purposefully, keeping it quite far out of reach. It's also an instructive case. I'm, I'm always interested in movies adaptations and that movie adaptation is notoriously so bad um, I haven't finished watching it I've been watching it in, in installments which is about all I can take but it's really interesting to me how you can take 
actually a pretty good thriller with complicated characters and a really, you know, it, a twisty but relatively coherent narrative and turn it into something that is such an unappealing uh, mess with really no redeeming value mm -hmm. whatsoever. One of the interesting things about going into Norwegian bookstores, and they have bookstores and libraries everywhere because I think they have to read all winter, is that I he he was not the Norwegian thriller writer that was at the top of the list. It was somebody named Anne Holt, mm -hmm. and I bought one of her books in English. In Norwegian? No, in English. <laughs> okay. And I'm going to read it because now I'm like, who is this? I have no idea. Hmm. Who are the Nordic, like, who are the Nordic thriller writers that are actually popular in Norway? Right. Then I tried a third thriller, Social Creature, which had gotten positive reviews, including in the Times. And I, it was one of two books that I actually put down. The other one was, and I'll probably get like killed by every millennial listener that we have for saying this, but the other was Conversations with Friends by Sally Rooney. And I just felt with both of them, both of them were very millennial novels and I'm sure appealed to many, many people maybe even some of whom are not millennials themselves, but I felt like the stakes were very low. I couldn't care enough about the characters. I might pick up the Sally Rooney again because I've heard so many positive things about her, but I think Social Creature is is uh, is, is in Germany now and someone else is probably well, <laughs> reading it with pleasure, but and, it's not me. And it's also another Patricia Highsmith homage. And mm -hmm. how many have there been in the last few years? I don't think I can even count them all. I'm sorry, but if you're going to, like, do a retelling or homage to Highsmith, you better be really good. All right, Greg, you were nodding silently during this conversation, and I want to hear what you actually think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was not a fan of conversations with friends myself. Um, I also <clears> – <throat> I didn't read it all the way through. So, again, the things that, that grabbed people, you know, maybe are in there later, but I didn't have the patience to stick with it that long. It's I, interesting. I she's she's got it such kind a... of superficial. And yes. So, you know, that that's why I was nodding. I didn't want to, um, you know, pile on. <laughs> um, and she, yet now she you have. is a celebrated young writer. Yes. And, you know, has a book coming out next spring that people yes. are already buzzing about. We're all old and cranky. Well, and, and I should say that our young colleague, Lauren Christensen, is a big Sally Rooney fan and is a millennial herself and, and a very smart reader. And so, um, you know, I, I don't doubt that there's something to the book, but I'm I'm not the target audience. You think time has passed us by? <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, being in your late 60s, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> <Yo>. <laughs> what about you, John? A what are you reading? A friend and I were talking yesterday about how we're both cranky old men, and I said, in fairness, I've been that way since I was 12, so age is, <laughs> age is just a number. I'm going to keep things global <laughs> after Norway and Germany. I was in Spain recently, as I've been saying, and I, I ended up not reading anything while I was there, so now I'm kind of doing you my Spain. nothing? Oh, we probably covered this while you were gone. I read maybe 40 combined pages of a couple of different things. Um, I was too busy gallivanting. That's a sign of a good vacation. But now I'm reading. I came back and one of the things I read was a novel called The Time of the Doves by a Catalan writer named, and I think I'm pronouncing this right, Marce Rudarida, which is R-O-D-O-R-E-D-A. It'll be on the website for anyone who wants to look it up, nytimes.com slash books. And it was published in 1980. It's about – it feels a little bit older than that, but partly because it takes place during – before, during, and after the Spanish Civil War. And it's a, it's a very simple and grim but really elegantly written story about a young woman who – meets a guy who she marries, and you're not totally sure that it's exactly the right fit, but they get married, have children. He ends up going off to fight. She's friends with him and his sort of macho-ish 
clan. And he goes off to fight. She's left alone um, to keep house and very much struggle to do so and to to keep the children fed. And then it builds to something that you did actually not to give anything away that you think is going to be very ultimately grim. And but the writing, there's something so spare and beautiful about the writing, and it ends up being very emotional. And some of the best writing is about these doves who they keep on the roof of the house uh, at the husband's sort of desire. And so when they first do this, I just want to read a couple of brief passages. There's this one great scene where they first try to teach the doves to fly. So she writes, the doves very distrustfully slowly came out of the dovecote one after another, scared to death that it was some kind of trick. Some of them flew onto the railing and looked around before taking off. The thing was they weren't used to being free and they waited a while before flying. Only three or four of them took off right away, but then some others joined them till there were nine because the others were nesting. When the doves got sick of flying, they started to come down, first one and then another. They went back in the dovecote like old ladies going to mass, taking little steps and jerking their heads like wind-up toys. From then on, I couldn't hang clothes on the roof because the doves would get them dirty. I had to hang them on the balcony and be grateful for that. And then later, a little later, she, she's kind of going crazy. She says, all I heard was doves cooing. I was killing myself, cleaning up after the doves. My whole body stank of doves, doves on the roof, doves in the apartment. I'd see them in my <laughs> dreams, the dove girl. <laughs> and then she says that her boss asks her, asks her something and says, didn't you hear me? And she says, I couldn't tell her all I heard was doves, that my hands still smelled from the sulfur in the water dishes and the bird seed in the food trays. I couldn't tell her all I heard was doves crying for food with all the fury in their bodies made of dark flesh stuck full of quills. And I couldn't tell her I had no one to complain to, that it was my own private sickness. And if I ever complained at home, Quimet, her husband, would start telling me his leg hurt. I couldn't tell her my children were like wildflowers no one took care of. And my apartment, which used to be a heaven, had turned into a hell. And when I put the kids to bed at night and went ring, ring on their belly buttons to make them laugh, I heard doves cooing. And my nose was full of the stench of feverish, newly hatched doves. Is this a book you read about or heard about while you were in Spain? Because you spent a lot of time in Barcelona. I did. I bought it in Barcelona, actually. And I had heard about it because right before I went to Spain, I put out a call on Twitter to ask people, to show people some of the things I was expecting to read and then to ask if they had any recommendations. And so I should give credit where it's due, which is to um, someone named Stephen Sparks, who on Twitter is at RS underscore Sparks, who said that I should add it to the list. It turns out it's a very, I think over there, it's it's considered one of the very best Catalan novels. And so it's very well known. I hadn't heard of it. He also said that I think there, and I haven't looked into this enough to know, but I guess there were some, there are some political disagreements about her. It's so funny. yeah, because I, when I was in Spain last year, I was in Madrid. And so there was no talk about Catalan <laughs> literature. That, that it was all so Madrilena. She, she's and, yeah. very much a Catalan writer. She wrote a novel called Death in Spring that mm-hmm. I liked a lot. I just bought a copy of that. Uh, also, wanna... very kind of psychologically immersive um, with political undertones. And Death in Spring sounds very allegorical and, and with a lot of political undertones. Yeah. In this book, the politics are they're not unspoken, obviously. You know, he's going off to war. But it's very much through her perspective. And it's domestic and it's quiet. But you you get the sense of all of the drama and all of the suffering and the want yeah. um, during that period of time. It's I found it incredibly moving and, and in a very cumulative way. I would highly recommend. You'll, you'll be happy to know she has a new novel coming out later this year. Newly in the translated, spring, new, newly translated, yeah. called uh, Camellia Street. Open Letter is bringing that out. I'm very happy to hear that. Yeah. All right, well, we'll end with happiness. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Pamela. Thanks. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com/books and. You can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Hold up. 